he feels like a millennial icon, just all nerves and anxiety. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories in them. And on today's episode, we are concluding our month-long journey through the parody film genre. So, Thomas, can you give everyone a recap on what we've talked about this month regarding the parody film genre? Tell us, like, what makes a parody film, a good parody film? So, we, we've had a lot of discussion about what makes a good one versus a bad one, because, as noted, there's a lot of younger people are probably more familiar with bad parody films than with good ones. Um, but the ones that we've covered specifically, we've talked about kind of having a devotion to the genre that you're parodying specifically the idea. I think what we've come away with overall is this idea that if you're making a parody movie, it still has to function as a movie within that genre. And I think that's something we're going to see a lot of today. Yeah. But specifically, you know, when we talked about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, it, they still set out to make it a Knights in Shining Armor movie. Austin Powers is still meant to be a spy movie. It still has the plot of a spy movie. Top Secret, not quite as much. That's a little <laughs> bit was a little bit more complicated debate as to where it falls on the line of good versus bad. You'll have to go back and listen to that episode if you missed it. But this idea that from from the writing standpoint, from the filmmaking standpoint, from the visuals to the design, you have to approach these movies as being like, I'm going to make blank, but it's going to be funny and we're going to poke fun at some of the genre tropes. And and the most important thing I think we came up with is you have to have a love for that genre. You can't approach it by saying, I'm, these movies are stupid, I'm going to make fun of them because that's that's when you really lose the audience and that's that's really the kind of hole that those films fell into in the you know late 90s early 2000s yeah. so i think that's something knowing knowing mel brooks you've you've got our mel brooks research from i got a lot for, for this week but but knowing mel brooks i think that's something we're going to find this week is someone who has a deep love for the genres that he is parodying yeah I, yeah as you're saying we're talking about mel brooks and and when I, i've been reading his book all about me it just came out 2021 so it's very new but yeah uh, one of the big things that he said i remember when he was talking about blazing saddles he was saying how like when making a movie you have to have an engine driving it it can't just be about the comedy mm -hmm. you have to have it needs to be about something else it needs to have a story and then you have jokes within it. Blazing Saddles is the big one because that's where he he makes his change. That's where he kind of jumps from like just telling comedy movies to making spoofs or parodies. Um, and he says that like when making Blazing Saddles, we had to realize because there's there's two type of people that come to a a, a serious satirical movie or a parody film. The people who will get every reference and get all the subtext and know everything about that genre. And the people who have never seen any movies about that genre. <laughs> and so it's like you have to make sure when you're doing that, you can tell a story that would entertain both of those audiences. Mm -hmm. So you're not alienating anyone. So you can. So with, say, Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein and these movies, there is a specific story that connects to that genre. But because the story is is kind of inherently a part of that genre you realize you don't have to watch those other movies to get the jokes that are happening. 
Mm-hmm. Like, as I said, I think he said, like, the big thing is, like, the only, only prerequisite you have coming into a Mel Brooks film is that hopefully you can laugh at it. Um, you don't need to know any of the basic knowledge, but if you do, that adds an extra layer to it. And I think Young Frankenstein is kind of the prime example of that, where it is a film that has a lot of references to all the other previous incarnations of Frankenstein all the way to the book. Um, and also the the horror genre of the universal horror genre monster movies at that time. But it's it's like it's just a little bit off that mm-hmm. makes it funny. If that's what his, a lot of his movies are, especially those early ones, it's the like, like you said earlier, it's, it's the, like we're making this movie. But what if we just take a little bit of a left here and like kind of show you the funniness in this trope or theme or whatever they're going for? And so, yeah, with Mel Brooks we've kind of built to this moment this month because Mel Brooks is kind of the, the granddaddy of this genre. I mean, he really kind of, when you reference even Monty Python, it's like, Oh yeah, we had seen the Mel Brooks movies or whatever. Mm-hmm. We've seen the, his stuff. So he's always the one that kind of gets referenced by everyone that come at, came after him. So what, what's kind of your history or your thoughts on Mel Brooks when coming into this episode, Thomas? Yeah. So a very long history with Mel Brooks. I honestly think, my intro to Mel Brooks, if I'm, if I'm really thinking way, way, way back, was Get Smart. Okay. TV Land used to play Get Smart, and I loved it. I was a big James Font, James Bond fan as a as like like eight years old or so, and I thought Get Smart was the funniest thing. And so I, mm-hmm. I think I remember when my parents, you know, I, Young Frankenstein was like the first one I saw mm-hmm. of his movies, and I, I remember my parents being like, "This is the guy." that did get smart and and from there it was just like every time we went into blockbuster i was like this is mel brooks can i get this one you know <laughs> grab blazing saddles off the shelf and they were like no 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 not that one that one's our but um young frankenstein and space balls were in my rotation probably around the time i was like 10 or 11 and i knew that my most of my friends would appreciate space balls a little bit more than young frankenstein young frankenstein I, a lot of them thought was a little too boring yeah but um yeah and then it was just kind of kept amassing them all and watching what i could watch and then i don't remember exactly what year it came out but they came out early in the dvd age they came out with like a box set of not all of his films but a decent amount of his films and and a lot of that that was stuff that i just had you know they didn't have it my blockbuster they didn't show on tv so that's when i saw silent movie and 12 chairs and to be or not to be uh history of the world so that that was really that was huge for me when that box set came out. I, I like I remember like saving up. <laughs> that was like, your holy grail. That yeah, was your my, holy like, grail. I, I must have been like 15, 16 because I was busting tables at that point. But I was like saving my money. up. It was, it was you know, pretty expensive at that point for a yeah. box set of like 12 DVDs. That's probably 60 bucks or more. Or if 12, maybe more. I might. Be like yeah, I think bucks. it was in the hundreds, like yeah. one, like 120 or something like that. Man, it's crazy when you look at the prices for stuff back in the day. It's now like a dollar or less. Like, <laughs> I, I think because working at the video store, we would just get like you get old VHS VHS tapes, and like we're selling them for like a quarter or a dollar at max, depending if it was like collectible. And you'd see the price tag of what it was when it was sold for it was like fifty bucks, and you're just like, gosh. <laughs> yeah, similar fashion. It's weird. This month, I realized how like this genre was a big part of my like i guess like comedy upbringing in a way mm-hmm. like if just like i i think from holy grail top secret can be the one outlier but from holy grail to austin powers to all of mel brooks stuff it was like this is the stuff my friends and i would quote all the time mm-hmm. it's like 
we would quote Spaceballs, we would quote Men in, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, we cro- quote Young Frankenstein. Blazing Saddles when you came to a little bit later. Because it was, you couldn't watch it when you're young. So high school it was, was when I it saw, was huge. I remember ABC Family aired Blazing Saddles one weekend, and <laughs> my fa- my like uh, extended family was all together. And my cousins and I were all obsessed with Spaceballs, and we were like, "Can we watch Blazing Saddles if it is on ABC Family?" And they were like, "Yeah, sure." And I mean, it was like like we were eating dinner and we were like watching the clock, and we were like, "Okay, we're done. Can we go upstairs and watch Blazing Saddles?" So the first time I saw it, it was edited for television. But uh, yeah, that was that was huge for me. I can't remember the first one I saw. I do remember I uns- unsuccessfully argued my uh, high school history teacher on showing Blazing Saddles. Because uh, <laughs> she, cause I, I think I let someone borrow my DVD and I was like, hey, can we can we watch this? And she's like, let me hear your argument on why we should watch this. <laughs> like, what, like, how does this tie into the history? I was like, well, it's about westward expansion at mm-hmm, the end of the mm-hmm. day. I just kept arguing. And like, by the way, our principal was in the room when I'm arguing this. She was just there. <laughs> And and she's like, yeah, she's like my, I think it was like, I think it was her her husband's like parents or something had like saw it, went to see the movie thinking it was a straight western, and they hated it, and they're like, that was the worst western I've ever seen before in my life. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was so yeah. But this this Mel Brooks is like, it is it is smart humor, but there's it, it always captures this like child in you if that makes sense mm-hmm. there is like some sort of innocence to it it's 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 a simpler certain, time it's a certain level where when you're a kid you think it's like the smartest humor you've ever seen in your life when yeah. you're an adult it it's this like it feels like this juvenile humor you can tap back into and it makes yeah. you feel kind of kiddish again it goes back to this more innocent younger time where you could just laugh at something that is kind of stupid mm-hmm. but also kind of smart so yeah, it's like that. This, so yeah, with me, very part of my upbringing, very part of your upbringing. I think a lot of people who are probably listening to it who are our age, it was probably a big part of their upbringing as well. And yeah, it's usually the three that everyone's kind of introduced to first are either I think Spaceballs, Young Frankenstein, or Robin Hood Men and Tights are the, are kind of the three. So yeah, so let's. I guess you want to dive into his his early upbringing. Speaking of upbringings, thankfully Mel Brooks came out with a recent biography, as I said this past year. Um, so a lot of this research that you're going to hear uh, for this specific section is coming from his recent memoirs, All About Me. Go check it out. So Mel Brooks was born Melvin James Kaminsky on June 28, 1926, in New York City to Max and Kate Kaminsky. His father's family was from Poland, and his mother's family was from what is now modern-day Ukraine. I think it was called Kiev, is, is, was the country at that point. So she... Both Jewish families. Um, he grew up in the neighborhood of Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And he had three older brothers, Irving, Lenny, and Bernie. Mel's father, Max, however, would sadly pass away of tuberculosis, tuberculosis at 34 years old when Mel was only two years old. Uh, Mel would say his older brother, Irving, would become the surrogate father of the family. And once all of his brothers were old enough to work and take care of the family, Kate was able to stay home and take care of of Mel. He speaks kind of highly of her saying, like, it must have been tough on her losing her husband when she's 30 years old with four boys to raise. Plus, it's the beginning of the Great Depression right after uh, her husband passes away. And he talks about how most of his weekends during the Depression, uh, he would go to the movies and she would let him deposit like empty milk bottles when that was a thing. Uh, and would get nine cents back to go to the movies. And one of the earliest films he saw was James Wells' Frankenstein in 1931. Hmm. And Mel would later honor his mother uh, by basing his stage name off of her surname, 
Uh, before marrying his father, her name was Kate Brookman. And when he started off as a drummer, he wanted to be Mel Brookman. But when he tried to paint Brookman on his bass drum that he was playing, he realized when he got to Brook, he couldn't fit the rest of the name. So it became Brooks. Hmm. Uh, one of his go-to bits with his friends was singing Putting on the Ritz in his Boris Karloff impersonation. So, sound somewhat there familiar. Yep. When he was nine, his uncle Joe, a taxi cab driver, took him to see Cole Porter's musical Anything Goes. It was his first Broadway show. And that's when Mel realized he wanted to be in show business. Brooks would say he would always love movie musicals because of this. Uh, his favorite movies were, were basically... Early on were Fred Astaire and Ginger Roger collaborations with Top Hat being his favorite his favorite movie of all time. Uh, his mm. second favorite movie of all time, however, would be A Night at the Opera with the Marx Brothers. He also said he loved the works of Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Laurel Hardy, Jack Benny, Fred Allen, W.C. Fields, and the Bing Crosby, Bob Hope road movies they did together. He would say that he always gravitated toward comedy teams because of having three brothers. He thinks that's why majority of his movies are about two guys or a small group of people going on a journey for something. When Brooks was 15 years old, America became involved uh, in World War II in 1941. By 1943, his three older brothers would be part of the war. His brother Bernie was a code breaker in the South Pacific. His brother Irving stayed in the U.S. but served as the second lieutenant in the Signal Corps uh, in New Jersey. And his brother Lenny was an engineer gunner in the U.S. Air Force. Now, Lenny was actually shot down behind Germany lines during World War II. Wow. And before before he was arrested by the Germans, he ripped off his dog tags because at this point, the dog tags listed if you were Jewish or not. Oh, man. So it had an H on it, which stood for Hebrew. And so Lenny knew, they, they, they knew that they were basically taking Jewish, uh, when, they, when, they, when they captured Jewish soldiers, they sent them to the concentration camps. So Lenny basically took, ripped off his dog tags and pretended he said that he was Polish. And his name was like uh, Lenny Pulowski, and he became a prisoner of war instead and would later would be released later on into the war. Uh, At age 17, Brooks would graduate early from high school because he tested high on an IQ test for the army. So he was sent to the elite army, elite army specialized training program with the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia. Mm -hmm. He would officially join the army when he turned 18. And after basic training, he'd be shipped off in February of 1945. He was initially going to be a radio operator for field artillery, but the army would make him a combat engineer. Uh, After spending a little time in Normandy, France, he would go over to Germany a few months after the Battle of the Bulge. Some sources claim he participated in the Battle of the Bulge, but I'm going to take it from him because he (laughs) actually says he came came in a few months afterwards and was lucky that it already happened. So uh, at this point, the war was winding down, but his job as a combat engineer was was to detect landmines and booby traps. Wow. In May of 1945, the Allies would claim victory in Europe. Brooks would stay in Europe a little longer as the U.S. forces were still based there. During this time, he was asked to temporarily join a touring variety show that went around the different army camps. Once they realized how talented he was, he became a permanent performer for these traveling shows until he was honorably discharged in June 1946. And all of the brothers came back from the war at this point, too. Once he got back to New York, Brooks began working as an assistant for a Broadway producer by the name of Benjamin Kutcher. Uh, Kutcher, I believe is how you pronounce it, was able to make his productions because of the financial backing he received from elderly women that he saw on the regular. <laughs> and one other article I read, he doesn't name him, say by name, but he said that he knew one producer 
who would basically sleep with different older women every day to get money from them, which I assume might be this guy. And then one other producer he knew that only got money by making flops. That would come into play later. Uh, uh, Brooks would say, though, in the book that Kutcher was the inspiration behind Max Bialystok uh, for his future directorial debut, The Producers. And some way he believed that Leo Bloom uh, was inspired by himself. Now, sometime in 1947, Brooks would become acquainted with a talented comedian by the name of Sid Caesar. One night after being introduced to Caesar at the famed Copacabana in New York City, Brooks would begin hanging out with him every night after his shows. Caesar would be, was becoming a big name in the entertainment scene around here, and Brooks would be a sounding board for Caesar, helping him with jokes and bits. Caesar would soon be the star of a hit television variety show called The Admiral Broadway Review, which was sponsored by a company called The Admiral that built television sets. Brooks was never credited as a writer for the show, but Caesar paid him out of pocket because he liked having him around. In an odd turn of events, the Admiral Broadway review was not renewed after one season. The reason being is because the show was so popular in 1949, people began buying up television sets in order to watch the show. And the Admiral company, which made these, could not keep up with the demand for the television sets. They had to decide, sponsor the show, or build a new factory to build more television sets. <laughs> they chose to build a factory. Uh, Brooks said it's the first time you probably ever heard of a show getting canceled because it was too popular. Suffering from success. I know. It's kind of crazy. You're just like, because you got to think at this point in time, in 1949, television is, it's like, it's a new thing in the world. And like, when you think of water cooler talk, it's like, you can't just go watch the thing. You have to be like, I have to go buy a whole television set to go watch this thing. So people were just probably mm-hmm. buying television sets after hearing about this show or whatever shows that were on. Now, not long after this, advertising executive future and future NBC president and Sigourney Weaver's future father, Pat Weaver, <laughs> would come up with the idea for a Saturday night variety block of programming for comedy, believing that people want to want some good quality entertainment to watch from home, which sounds like a crazy idea at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first hour was a variety show hosted by comedian Jack Carter. And the last 90 minutes, the review was called Your Show of Shows, which featured Sid Caesar, uh, Imogene Coca, and Carl Reiner. Mel Brooks would serve as a writer on the show, along with Reiner, famed playwright Neil Simon, and his brother Danny Simon. Jack Carter's show would soon be canceled after a year, but Your Show of Shows would run for 139 episodes, becoming one of the first massive television hits. Uh, According to Brooks, the show was so popular that Broadway receipts were down on Saturday night in New York when the show aired wow. along with restaurant and taxi profits in the city were all down. Wow. I, th- I think Broadway producers, they, they even went to NBC and to Pat Weaver begging them to move the show to Monday nights because <laughs> that's usually what that's the blackout dates for Broadway shows and they mm-hmm. wouldn't do it. So after spending all the 1950s working as a television writer, Brooks began working with his, your show of shows, co-writer Carl Reiner on an act known as the 2000 year old man. They, it was the act they created where Mel Brooks plays like a guy who saw, uh, I think, Jesus on the cross, basically. And it's like an old man who's like re- who's seen all these events in, in the world. Um, and after several television appearances doing the act, it would soon turn into a very popular comedy album series with the two actors. Uh, the success of those albums apparently helped Brooks during several financial low moments in the 1960s and sometimes in the 70s. In the 1950s, Brooks would marry a Broadway dancer, Florence Baum, but they would divorce about nine years after marriage. Uh, and in 1961, while attending the rehearsal of the Perry Como show, 
he met actress Anne Bancroft, who later became famous for her performance in The Graduate. He didn't think she knew who he was, but he apparent but apparently she was a big fan of two thousand year old man, and they headed off the day they met at the rehearsals. Would soon begin dating, would marry in nineteen sixty four, and would stay to stay together until her death in two thousand five. Brooks would hop around the comedy world in nineteen sixty, actually winning. I never knew this an Oscar for best short short subject for a cartoon for this animated short film the, called The Critic, hmm. where he he does the voice and helped write it, I believe. Uh, in 1964, with the James Bond series and the Pink Panther series taking hold at the box office, Brooks was asked to come up with a spy show. Uh, he partnered with writer-actor Buck Henry, who would later go on to write The Graduate, What's Up, Doc, Heaven Can Wait, and the 1995 film To Die For, starring Nicole Kidman. Vast variety of, of, of scripts from Buck Henry. Mm-hmm. And that show would eventually become one of Thomas's favorite childhood shows, Get Smart, and it would run for a total of five seasons. Now, can you talk about like what Get Smart is about real quick, Thomas? <laughs> uh, Get Smart is a is a parody of uh, definitely James Bond, but I think mostly like Man from Uncle, I think was was kind of the main parody of it. But it's a spy show about an agency called Control and Control was always trying to stop chaos. But uh, by all means, Control was like a fairly good spy agency, but for some reason, Maxwell Smart, who's the main character of Get Smart, is just an idiot. Uh, <laughs> that's just kind of like the thing. Don Adams played Maxwell Smart. And uh, yeah, it was just always, it was very, I, I do think we, you guys talked about Austin Powers last week. I think Austin yeah. Powers does owe a lot to Get Smart because it's just this kind of this idea. It's like, all blind confidence in mm. a secret agent eventually <laughs> leads to success and so <laughs> maxwell always kind of maxwell always kind of bumbles into saving the mission plus the backup of uh agent 99 pr- played by barbara felden who was like his sidekick but was also the only one who was actually smart um yeah great show so much fun yeah it would it would run for a total of five seasons Buck Henry and, and Brooks Howard would have a falling out after Get Smart because Buck Henry resented the billing of Get Smart because it said created by Mel Brooks with Buck Henry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they apparently would not talk for, I don't know if they ever kind of reconciled, but they would not talk for decades. Um, I don't know if they ever did. Because in 2004, they basically, oh yeah, they stopped talking after the show. The success of Get Smart would allow Brooks to have some financial freedom, however, after he sold it. Because after the first season, he would have very little involvement in the show, and he began developing his next project. Some people have said it started off as a novel, and then it became a Broadway show, and then it became a movie. And the idea was about these two producers learning they could make more money with a flop than with a hit, and that was basically the premise of the show. And the title of the show would be Springtime for Hitler. Um, He sent his outline to several Broadway producers, one producer Kenneth Bloomgarden, who would pro- who produced Death of a Salesman, famous play, told him it was brilliant, but it had too many characters and sets, and he thinks it should be more of a it was more of a movie than a Broadway show. Brooks realized this was a good idea and began writing it as a screenplay, and that movie would become The Producers. Now, Thomas, what is The Producers about? Well, I feel like we've we've covered a lot of it in his <laughs> life, but um, it's about Max Bialystok, who is a former successful Broadway producer who has fallen on hard times due to a, several flops in a row and is now relying on seducing old women into giving him money 
to pay for his shows and he just can't quite get them to take off. But when uh, played by Zero Mostel, but when Max Bloom or uh, Leo Bloom played by Gene Wilder, who is this very nervous accountant i feel like this might be the first time a panic attack was ever like portrayed in film i'm hysterical he, he feels like a millennial icon just just all nerves and anxiety <laughs> leo bloom comes to do his books and just makes this observation that you could make more money if you if you raised a lot of money and made a flop you could just kind of pocket that money and no one would pay attention because everyone kind of writes off a flop as a, as a money loser anyway. So the IRS would never really look for the rest of the money to which Bialystok takes as an idea to produce a terrible play on purpose, pocket all the money and flee the country. So they set out to make the worst play they can, including buying up a script from a possibly former nazi uh, i know about, possibly he's a former nazi <laughs> about romanticizing hitler. the hitler yeah. regime yeah. and spoiler alert if you haven't already seen the producers in some form <laughs> of its existence uh it ends up being so bad it's good i feel like in a very early proponent of this so bad it's good uh you know yeah long before how did this get made or anything like that <laughs> people love springtime for hitler and so they end up in this predicament of uh the, you know if the play is a success then they're screwed and the play is a huge yeah. success because it's hilarious because everyone be asking for the profits they're making off the play and they essentially they say it's like you can only sell 100 percent of a play and they ask uh, i think max like well how much have we sold to leo he goes Twenty five thousand percent. Like that's how much they basically sell to people. And apparently, it created the term creative accounting is what the movie did. <laughs> that which is now very a popular word in the entertainment industry is creative accounting. The making of this is kind of crazy because we could easily do a whole episodes in the making of this movie because it sounds like just a almost disaster, <laughs> like of how this movie came to be. So briefly, uh, we're talking about some of the scenes. So for one, Mel Brooks never directed before. Before this movie, he only done television, as we've been talking about. He never done film before. So no one wanted to make this movie because it was so dark and like we can't make fun of Hitler at 23 years after World War Two. <laughs> so the only people that were the only, only production company or, or kind of studio that was up for it was a uh, place called Embassy Pictures. And uh, the, the kind of head of the company, Joseph Levine uh, or Levine. Uh, needed proof that Brooks was up to directing. So Brooks agreed to direct a commercial for Frito-Lay mm. with Gene Wilder appearing as a daredevil av aviator. Some of this information came from a variety a Bandy Fair article called Producing the Producers uh, by Sam Kastner in 2004. So it came out a few years after the big success of the producers on Broadway. So briefly, Anne Bancroft was the one that tipped Brooks off about a young actor in a play in New York City, and his name was Gene Wilder. Bancroft apparently was a really good eye for talent because she also tipped Brooks off about Franklin Jella for 12 chairs. Oh, nice. She had done summer stock with him at one point. One kind of funny story with the casting of this movie, uh, the person who was going to play Franz Liebkin, the the the, uh, the Nazi, uh, for, or former Nazi in this movie, the playwright, was going to be a young Dustin Hoffman. Really? Was what it was going to be. He was he wanted to do the movie. He was going to audition for it, but he had to drop out unexpectedly because he was asked to fly to L.A. 
to audition for the role of Benjamin Braddock in The Graduate. Opposite of Anne Bancroft. Uh, opposite <laughs> yeah. Anne Bancroft. Basically, uh, it was fun. the story is that basically Hoffman showed up to Mel Brooks's place. Brooks heard like pebbles being thrown at his window at like 2 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. And it was Dustin Hoffman outside. And he said, hey, Mike Nichols just called me. I have to audition in L.A. He goes, well, or I have to audition for Mike Nichols. He goes, Mike Nichols in L.A. with my wife. They're doing the graduate. He goes, yeah, that's what I'm auditioning for. Um, and he goes like, OK, well, they're not going to cast you because like they're going to cast someone more good looking. So you're yeah. going to be back here in like in like a few days. And Hoffman calls up two days later. He goes, yeah, I got the part. <laughs> and he was like, oh. He goes, but it worked out because they cast Kenneth Mars as uh, Franz Liebkin. Mel Brooks went, Buck Henry. <laughs> Mel Brooks. Yeah, there there was an interesting kind of rivalry between these two at this point in time because these producers and The Graduate come out the same year. And later, when producers were about to come out, the studio, by the way, same studio that was doing, I think The Graduate was doing The Producers. And they real they thought producers was gonna bomb, so they put no money behind it, and they're putting all the money behind the graduate for <laughs> promo. Um, and the only reason, because they they went to do a test screening of it in like Philadelphia, I think Philadelphia is what it was, and Joseph Levine showed up, and it was like thirty six people were in the theater, like no one was there, no one laughed, <laughs> and he was like, "We're burying this movie," and the the thing that saved it was Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers saw a a cut of the movie when he he had like a movie night. Him and his friends Mm -hmm. had a movie night. It was for, I think, Paul Mazursky or whatever. They're doing a movie for Paul Mazursky. And they're they're having movie night and they're going to do a Fellini film, but they didn't have the print. But the guy who was writing the the, the projector uh, had an early print of the producers. And Peter Sellers loved it. And he wrote this this vanity or this variety. He basically paid for a variety ad. Uh, the next day with his review of calling it brilliant and that Mel Brooks was a genius. And that's essentially what actually won Mel Brooks and Oscar for best screenplay was Peter Sellers doing that. Hmm. Um, it would be kind of a bomb. It would barely make any. I don't know if it really made any money uh, upon its release. Uh, I think it made it gross 1.6 million on $941,000 budget. So not really a hit. It was nominated for two Oscars. Uh, one for Gene Wilder and then Brooks one for best original screenplay. But the production was like so hectic because basically everyone kind of says that Brooks was a little bit in over his head because he didn't know how to shoot for film. Or, like he didn't know really where to put the camera. He, he didn't like that. He could only get five minutes of usable footage every day. He wanted to get it like all done like in mm-hmm. one, in one kind of time. Uh, and apparently him and Mostel didn't, like had a lot of issues on set. Like, so Mistel apparently a few years before was like hit by a bus. Weird story was hit by a bus. So his leg was always hurting. So he had it in his contract that he could stop shooting every day by five 30 if he wanted to. And he would do that a lot, apparently. Hmm. And Ralph Rosenblum, who was the editor could basically said like, it was just terrible from the beginning. He's like, we, he is because Rosenblum started editing the movie before the shooting was done. And Brooks found out about it. And was just like, you're never going to edit an inch of this film unless I'm here in front of you while you do it. Like he did not like an editor editing the film without him there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. The movie became as big of a cult classic as it did. <laughs> um, so what, so what are your thoughts real briefly on the producers? I guess like, cause, cause we've talked a little bit about it. Or I've talked a little bit about the history of it. 
but how do you feel about this movie i i love the producers this is one i we were my my parents found i think we got it from blockbuster around the time my like mel brooks obsession took off and uh we ended up buying it so this was one i i subjected a lot of my friends to that i was like oh you guys like space balls let's watch this one and they were all like what the, this is not you know i'm 12 this is not as good as space balls <laughs> Uh, but I, I always love this one and, and it, it captures a very specific type of energy. I, I think you and I have talked privately off the, off the podcast about kind of the similarities between Peter Bogdanovich's, uh, work and early Mel Brooks kind of stuff. And so th this yeah. is one, it's got that kind of screwball energy to it. It's, it's, yeah. you know, mad, 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 mad world that, that that kind of era and it's it's not fully a spoof although he is starting you know with the inside the movie like with springtime for hitler you can see that he's starting to play with like making parodies of broadway shows but the energy in this one is just so wild i mean the first the like basically the first act of the movie is one scene you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then and so you're like i could see how he would be writing that as a play but then it's just like after that first scene, it's like, boom, here's this whole world. And here's this yeah. whole cast of characters we're bringing in together. Yeah, it's it's kind of once after that fountain scene at the Lincoln Center, it's like everything opens up is what mm -hmm. kind of feels like. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the first the first third of the movie is just these two guys deciding whether or not they're <laughs> going to do this thing. Um, but it's so much fun and it's got so many like huge personalities just having a blast in it. And just to think that you could have rolled up to the theater had, had you not seen because this this was after bonnie and clyde right like, like a year 60s, after no same year 67 same year you know it's like that gene wilders and that and then this and it's just like who is this guy you know yeah and he he is so dynamic in this movie it's it's kind of crazy to think that you could walk into this movie like not having any idea and zero mostel obviously was like a huge uh personality you know a lot of comedy big, records, big on broadway kind of thing, yeah big but, on broadway yeah he like yeah. three won three tonys at this point i think is what it was but yeah, Wild, but Wilder's the one to talk about for me because like Wilder just I don't know if anyone's played hysterics <laughs> like him before. And he's I mean, honestly, one of the best like ranges as far as comedic ranges go, because if you you picture this one and how like just on a on a like a wire his character is and could just yeah. explode any second and then you look at we'll get to blazing saddles and his yeah. his whole thing is just like i'm over it <laughs> um, well yeah look, yeah you gotta look at this it's like it's like you, you do this in 67 i think he does willy wonka in 71 and two very different characters but even in that it's like you think of willy wonka of like he goes from being like the very calm and like that guy but then he just has this energy where he bursts at the very end of like yelling at charlie yeah like, it's just like you you don't know where he's gonna go like mm -hmm. ever it's like he could blow up on you or blow up on himself in a way like he doesn't produce i'm hysterical it, it it's just it's what he and then it's like going to young frankenstein where he becomes again like this mad it's insane of what he does like you mm -hmm. said so many different levels the range of it is insane like and i wonder too i wonder if like it sounds like Wilder is like kind of the glue that keeps Brooks together sometimes. Mm -hmm. And you'll, you'll, that'll become more apparent as we go into Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. But I think like when he won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, he goes, I like, thanks, like, his producers and, and Zero Mostel 
and Gene Wilder. And I also like to thank Gene Wilder. And I also <laughs> like to thank Gene Wilder. Like, so it sounds like like Wilder is kind of the glue that like kind of keeps Brooks's chaos at bay. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds like he was literally like it, it's like every time Brooks describes it's like, oh, I told him this piece of news, and he just burst into tears. It's like how he kind of describes Gene Wilder. He's like, oh, I gave him the script for producers and he burst in the tears. Or mm. they cut Gene Wilder on the Oscars when I won the, when, won the uh, uh, Oscar and he's bursting into tears. Like, that's how he describes Gene Wilder. He seems like a very emotional man is what it mm. was, Gene Wilder. Yeah, it's it's you can I think you can see first off, I think it's no matter how difficult their path was to making this, I think it's an incredible debut film. I think it's just I agree. it's made yeah. very well. I mean, all the way down to one of my favorite scenes, honestly, it's just the way that they cut the opening credits. Yeah, it's you're very going back odd. and forth between him like seducing this or half partially seducing, partially beating like beat up by this little old lady and <laughs> you keep you just keep getting these freeze frames with the uh with the score coming in, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um and you, you also see very early on here something that's going to become a recurring thing in his movies is that he loves a musical segment and he is fantastic oh, at musical segments. Yeah. I mean, again, it's uh, when reading about him, he's always like, oh, like, every movie has to have a good song. Yeah. Like in his movies. And when you look at it, like, all of his movies have some sort of musical sequence in them. If it's an opening title song or if it's just a musical sequence like I put on the Ritz uh madeline khan and blazing mm. saddles like there's always some sort of musical element here and it starts off here with the producers like he's very much always blending different genres and again when when kind of learning that his favorite movies growing up were fred astaire and ginger rogers it makes sense yep. uh and also being near broadway and because they were such from a poor family couldn't really go to broadway shows that much it like just became kind of a obsession of his where i think it's, it feels like he always wanted to be a bride producer, likely a bloom, but he just got into movies instead. And TV mm-hmm. is what it was. So we're talking about Bonnie and Clyde. It is a very distinct point in Hollywood mm-hmm. where things are changing. And that opening is actually a good example of like just the style of it that's changing of the at the pace of editing. Well, and there's this there's this period in the late 60s where comedy and it, it feels weird to compare this with like you know like to compare it with the graduate or i mean i think a better comparison is like heartbreak kid like elaine may but like yeah this period where people making comedy were like oh yeah i can make and everyone thinks you know we invented the anti-hero everyone likes to think we invented the anti-hero like in the last 10 years we're breaking bad or something but this this period in like the late 60s where i was like i can make a comedy about just absolute scumbags <laughs> and if they're if we play it well and if it's funny people will come along for the ride yeah and th- it all like so many different types of comedy coming out around this period but it all feels like kind of dark and kind of twisted yeah in a, in a way that the be- the movies before then did not at all roger ebert said that he he was in an elevator with brooks right after this and that a critic turned to him it's like that movie was vulgar talking about producers mm. and a lot a lot of people said it was vulgar it was offensive it was it was terrible like i think uh pauline kale said like isn't it script writing it's gag writing like people like it was very mixed i mean it's, it's, it's took it. you have to keep reminding yourself it's 20 years removed for world war ii like if somebody dropped a movie today and they had <laughs> sorry if they had a musical about 9-11 in it like you have to think that some people are gonna be 
really kind mad. of upset <laughs> kind of upset it's, it's 20 we're 20 years removed that's yeah. that is ex- the the equal time period right there so how can a producer make more money with a flop than he could with a hit well it's simply a matter of creative accounting let's assume just for the moment that you are a dishonest man assume away it's very easy you simply raise more money than you really need what do you mean well you did it yourself only you did it on a very small scale what did i do you raised two thousand dollars more than you needed to produce your last play so what what did it get me i'm wearing a cardboard belt well that's where you made your mistake you didn't go all the way you see if you were really a bold criminal you could have raised a million but the play cost me only sixty thousand dollars to produce and how long did it run one night you see do you see what I'm trying to tell you? You could have raised a million dollars, put on a $60,000 flop, and kept the rest. But what if the play was a hit? Well, then you'd go to jail. Oh. See, once the play's a hit, you have to pay off all the backers. And with so many backers, there could never be enough profits to go around. Producers is mixed in terms of reception and financial gross. And his next movie is a movie called The Twelve Chairs. And so, Thomas, what is The Twelve Chairs about? The Twelve Chairs is an adaptation of a novel. Um, yeah, a Russian novel. A, a Russian novel, yeah. Translated to diamonds to sit on is the the english translation of the title but it's about a a group of men a it's kind of this fallen aristocrat and then uh, this con artist and the aristocrats like former servant who find out in like soviet russia post-revolution that their the his the aristocrat's mother-in-law reveals on her deathbed that she had sewn all the family jewels into these this dining room set before uh, the revolution and before they were kind of thrown out of their estate. And so this aristocrat who has found out from her deathbed is trying to find the chairs, but (laughs) is also kind of racing against this con artist and also this, the priest who took her confession on her deathbed, who also knows her secret. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, kind of not, not screwball comedy in the sense that we've talked about screwball comedy in, in like, rom-com yeah but in the sense that that a lot of other people would think like mad 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 world or it's just you know this mad dash to find money and 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 a race to kind of hunt down this this missing piece of treasure basically i never seen this film coming into this episode and i was actually i was surprised by how much i enjoyed this movie this was in the box set and when i was 15 i probably wasn't ready for this one i remember Mm -hmm. i watched it i watched everything in that box set and this one came away. I was like, eh, um, no, nah. but I, I had revisited it since. And it, I mean, it is distinctly different. I think yeah. from anything else that he's done, it, it, it kind of stands on its own. It does. it does, you know, it continues to kind of break the fourth wall sometimes with some of the mm-hmm. jokes, but it does still work as this contained piece of comedy without any like really need for reference to anything else. And, and I think that's, it's real, that's really unique. And it's, it's, yeah, he, I think he pulls it off well. I think yeah because of the legacy of the rest of his films, it does tend to get forgotten because it doesn't have any sort of parody really to it. It's just a comedy. But yeah. I think it's really well done. And Frank Langella, young Frank Langella is, is magnetic. Was he, was he ever this young? Like it's like, he, <laughs> he, he's, he's so young in this movie. And I think him and Ron Moody who play, who, who plays the aristocrat, I think have just like fun chemistry together. Mm. And it, it is a very interesting kind of double feature with the producers. Cause it's about two, two men who were kind of con artists or scammers in a way who were trying to get something. Mm-hmm. And through the course of the movie become friends in the process is what ends up happening with, with mm-hmm. both the with producers and 12 chairs. It's 
received well critically. Ebert, Roger Ebert, like he gave producers, he gave this four stars out of four, but it doesn't do well box office wise. But it does set up the first movie, the first collaboration with Mel Brooks and Dom DeLuise, who ends up mm. being in majority of his films uh throughout his career i was a, i was a big dom deluise fan as a kid because big one i loved mel brooks and two he was in like two of my favorite animated films uh five all goes west Five goes west and oliver and company oh he was in fern gully too right i'm not i'm not insane i've never seen fern gully oh well well it was not in my childhood rotation we just lost a lot of no um if you didn't have you know it was the 90s if you didn't have it on vhs you weren't seeing it oh a troll in central park that's the oh, one i remember down i did like that movie troll actually in central park. I, I, I i'm honestly not sure if i actually like that movie my grandmother had that movie on vhs and it ter- uh, my sister was terrified of it so i always yeah. asked to put it on because I knew it scared her. So I'm not actually sure if I liked that movie or I just liked Scaring that it sister. scared her. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, just an iconic voice. Just absolutely fantastic. Great voice. voice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the movie, it starts their collaboration. They shot in Yugoslavia. Brooks said it was 20% good, 80% terrible. <laughs> there was only one car the crew had. The entire crew had one car, apparently. But he says he it's he still gets letters about that movie after people have watched it. He says that he, he does think it's one of the best films he's done. There's a beautiful sequence when they're when they're like towards the end when they're like when they're tra- when they're doing their journey or whatever. That big wide shot of the sun setting mm-hmm. of them. Like it feels it feels like completely different. Like it, it does not feel like a Mel Brooks movie. And it's probably one of the most beautiful shots he did his entire career. It's an underrated film, very much separate from the world of Mel Brooks, but a very interesting film nonetheless. So that's kind of, like I said, that's kind of a failure at the box office and criti- and, and it does okay critically. That's 1970. At this point, Brooks needs a hit. And in 1973 or so, Brooks gets a script from an, ag- from an agent he's met, uh, David uh, Begelman. Uh, and it's a script called Tex X, which would eventually become Blazing Saddles. So, Thomas, what is Blazing Saddles about? Blazing Saddles is about a railroad company that's trying to build a railroad through this existing town in the Wild West during the Western expansion, Manifest Destiny and whatnot. <laughs> and my exact they, pitch to my teacher. <laughs> they decide to they need to, like, get rid of this town. And so they decide that in order to tear it make the town tear itself apart they're going to have an african-american man appointed sheriff in this town and these racist white people in this town are the town's just going to crumble if they can appoint this man to be sheriff and he comes in and befriends this drunk gunslinger uh who is he finds locked up in 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 the jail the waco kid yeah waco kid played by gene wilder cleavon little plays the the sheriff and they end up kind of catching on to this plan and bringing the town together to defend itself against the railroad company. Again, two guys on a journey. Yep. Three films in a row, two guys on a journey. Yeah, 1974 is a big year for Mel Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein the same year is kind of insane. The script comes to him and he's like, well, I want to go back to my early TV days and have like a writing team on this one. Because it was a script by, it was an outline, I think, or a rough draft by Andrew Bergman. And Mel Brooks said, like, hey, let's go back to my your show of shows kind of uh, roots and let's bring in a bunch of writers. So he brings in Andrew Bergman, who wrote the original script, 
uh, Norman Steinberg and his writing partner, Alan Unger, who was a dentist, by the way. He was just, he was just like writing sketches on the side and a young comedian by the name of Richard Pryor. And Pryor would be kind of the big person who helped write the character of Black Par Bart. And initially, they all wanted Pryor to play that character. But the studio could not ensure Pryor because of his previous drug arrests, what it was. Hmm. So that's why I cast Cleavon Little. Um, the initial choice for Waco Kid. Do you know who the initial choice was for Waco Kid? No. John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> Mel Brooks apparently met him, uh, I, I think, on, on at the, like, the commissary or whatever they were at. And he's like, hey, I'm Mel Brooks. And I think he, I think, I think Wayne either had seen one of his movies, maybe. But he said, like, I'm writing a Western. I've never done a Western before. But, like, I think he'd be great for this part. Wayne reads it. Comes back the next day at the commissary. He's like, that's the craziest and funniest script I've read. I can't play that part. Because um, my audience would not like me playing, being in a movie of this nature. But I'll be the first one in line to go see it. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I don't know how the... The, the the subject matter here would go over for John Wayne. For in that John period. Wayne's, yeah. So yeah, exactly. Uh, and so he doesn't do it. And that's when they cast gig young or uh, is his name? Gig G I G young. Who's oh, an Oscar winning nice. actor, three time, three time nominee. What land land the role of Waco kid. Okay. But Brooks had heard was that he was a known alcoholic first day of filming. It's the scene in the jail cell. And he's like, oh, my God, Young's amazing. And then he starts vomiting all over set. Oh, no. Because he's having alcoholic withdrawals because he's not drinking. So Brooks has to fire him. This is a Friday, I believe, by the way. He calls up Gene Wilder, who's in, like, New York or someplace. He's like, hey, Gene, I'm in pickle here. I need you to come play this character. He's like, I'll be there tomorrow morning. Wilder takes a flight out Saturday morning, gets in the studio to, like, costume prep, gets the script, Monday morning shoots that scene with just like a day of prep. Wow. Again, when I say I think Gene Wilder is kind of this glue that kind of just can calm Mel Brooks. Mm -hmm. And that kind of shows in this movie where, again, like you said, he's kind of this like very laid back character throughout this entire film. The exact opposite of the hysterical character of Leo Bloom. So what are some of your favorite scenes in this movie? Well, I'm, I'm going to go. We've, we've already discussed this musical sequence. <laughs> First off, Madeline Kahn. Amazing. One of the funniest people to have ever lived. Yeah. Just absolutely incredible in anything she's ever been in. And she's fantastic in this, playing this like Marlena Dietrich kind of obviously making yeah. fun of her German accent, but this like German femme fatale. And she has mm. this song about how, how tired she is. Yeah, she's very tired. She's she's so tired. Um, yeah, that's 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 definitely a highlight for me. That's one of those things, you know, if this is on TV, I'm staying or I'm, I'm turning it on. I'm watching it until I see Madeline Kahn every time. Yeah, let's talk about her real quick, because talk about Gene Wilder's range. Madeline Kahn's range is also insane of just mm. what she could do. Like she, when you compare this this movie and then compare it to Young Frankenstein later, Two very opposite characters. Mm. Like she's playing this like again German accent, Maria Dietrich, like uh sultry, like cabaret dancer, burlesque dancer. And then the same year she's playing this like basically debutante in a way. Mm -hmm. Like with, with the character Young Frankenstein. And just two different forms of comedy. And then even and, and then compare it to like what's up, Doc, 
and then even put it in uh, with Clue. They're all just very different, but all still very Madeline Kahn at the end mm-hmm. of the day. And Brooks even talks about he's like, oh, yeah, she could in the his book. He basically, oh, yeah, we cast Madeline Kahn because she could basically do anything. Like, that's just the way she was. She could literally do anything she ever wanted to. She could be she could be an opera singer if she wanted to. I'm tired, sick, and tired of love. I've had my fill of love from below and above. Tired, tired of being admired. Tired of love uninspired. Let's face it, I'm tired. Another scene I love, and I I think there's always so much discourse, like you were saying, with this movie about, you know, how how influential Richard Pryor was with the script and how he was supposed to be in it. But I do I do think Cleavon Little is great in this. I think he yeah. and Gene Wilder have fantastic chemistry. So it's, it's a really great buddy comedy. It is. It turns into a great buddy comedy. Yeah. And I love one of my favorite Cleavon Little scenes is when he arrives at the town and the the town folk who have, are awaiting the new sheriff just like immediately turn racist on him. And then he's got yeah. <laughs> sequence where he takes himself hostage yeah <laughs> everyone in town's like starts going with it it's yeah. so dumb and yeah. and this is you know if we're talking brooks's development i mean this is obviously such a huge leap he's done kind of paradox parody type stuff before but this is really the first time that kind of get smart full-on spoof has come over where where he can fully break i mean literally break the fourth wall in this yeah. movie and he does it often. And and so this is really his first dive into like, all right, we're taking this genre and we're just playing with it completely. So, yeah, yeah you get that you get you get something like him putting a gun to his head and doing two different voices and taking himself hostage. And somebody being like, he just might do it. Put your guns away. <laughs> no, Cleveland, yeah, Cleveland Little is amazing in this. Like his stuff with, with Gene Wilder, them chatting away in the jail cell when they're like what's like what's the town going to do to him and then it's like once they save it like it's them kind of the after again it's also very like rio bravo like the kind of like hanging out chatting basically the two characters mm-hmm. and they're fantastic in it and then like harvey corman like every i think everyone's yeah. great in this movie harvey corman's amazing as Hedley lamar yeah another um, another great partnership for brooks yeah is him it starts and off corman. here yeah um and then again dom del popping up as as the hollywood hollywood director later on um like everyone it's interesting because this is a movie brooks has talked about where like this is a movie you can't make nowadays (laughs) because of everything yeah i don't i don't want to dive too deep into you know cancel culture and kids are getting too sensitive but this i mean it's it's a it's an extremely progressive movie and and i think it is one that gets held up sometimes i think i think this is one of those movies where people miss the point and, yeah. and you do talk to people sometimes that are like, well, well you, know, you can't make jokes anymore. You can't even make Blazing Saddles anymore. And I'm like, you're you're missing the point. Because people are being racist in Blazing Saddles does not make it a racist movie. And if you're laughing, yeah. you're laughing at people, you know, dropping racial slurs in this movie. You're part of the problem. Like, this movie is making fun of racists. It's The not... people who are racist in the movie, the dumbest people in the movie yeah. is the thing. Yeah. Like, that's exactly. the thing. So I do think some people, some people, especially, I think a lot of the people who are like, oh, Blazing Saddles, they want to cancel Blazing Saddles. It's like, okay, well, you probably haven't watched it since the 70s. And you all you remember is 
a lot of racist people making racist jokes, but they're they are the butt of the joke in the movie. They are the butt of jokes. Yeah, yeah. And, and like prior, because it's he said that it was prior and little that basically because the studio wanted to cut a lot of the race stuff in it. I think it was prior and little that were just like no, like stand by it. I think it's gonna it's like important of like what the what you're trying to say. Like it's about racial prejudice in the, the day of like they believe this guy Bart can't be this leader. And he ends up being a better leader than anyone in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then you have this kind of nice friendship between him and him and Waco Kid, played by Wilder. I think it's a really good film. I think it ends up being his biggest hit because the movie ends up making $119 million on a $2.6 million budget. The big thing I love in the movie, too, is is Frankie Lane's uh, Blazing Saddle song at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Talk about Brooks's kind of writing. He writes a very traditional West opening Western song. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's like again, Frankie Lane was like famous for doing these Western songs like High Noon or Three Ten to Yuma, and these old Westerns mo- movies always had like that opening song that like sets the tone. And Brooks was like, "We brought it. We were like, we need to get a Frankie Lane type. We're like, why don't we just ask him?" <laughs> and they and they ask him, and they're just like, "We felt so bad because like he he just sang the song with all of his heart, mm-hmm. like it was a serious like just just like." dramatic song for this and he doesn't know it's a very comical movie but brooks like that's what makes kind of the movie work is that it's taken so seriously that like it sets the tone of the entire film the movie ends up getting three oscar nominations one for editing one for the song by frank that frankie lane sings that brooks wrote and one for madeline khan Mm -hmm. for best supporting uh, uh actress so it's a huge hit. It's the hit he needed He needed in his career. And while making it, beginnings of his next project start to form. While on set, Gene Wilder is writing a movie, writing ideas down of this movie about the grandson of Dr. Frankenstein. And Brooks asks about it. Wilder tells him, he's like, hey, will you help me write it? Uh, and so they begin to meet every night while Brooks is editing Blazing Saddles, writing young frankenstein so so thomas what is young frankenstein about young frankenstein is about the grandson of dr frankenstein who is now a professor in america going by frankenstein because he's kind of embarrassed of the 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 past especially trying to be a serious scientist in the world of science when your grandfather is famous for being this crackpot who may or may not have been able to animate a corpse but he is granted the castle Frankenstein in a, in his will, in his grandfather's will, and comes to uh, just kind of see it. But while he is there, finds his secret library and his all of his journals showing how he was able to create life from death and becomes obsessed with it and decides that he himself is going to recreate his grandfather's work. When watching this movie this time, we had talked about like Bride of Frankenstein previously on our sequel episode. And looking back at this now, it really is this loving tribute mm-hmm. to these movies. Like it really captures it. This this one more than any of his movies feels like they just said, we're going to make a universal monster movie, but we're going to have jokes in it. Yeah. Um, but we're going to shoot it. We're going to play it exactly like we were doing one of those. That was the reason why I wanted to shoot in black and white. And it's funny. Uh, they went, I think it was Columbia they went to. And they, Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks are writing it. Wilder says, he, did, he does tell Mel Brooks earlier, he goes, he goes, 
you can direct this movie as long as you do not star in the movie. And Brooks is like, why? He's like, because you have the tendency to break the fourth wall mm-hmm. a lot of the times as an actor, even when you don't mean to. And he's like, this movie, I don't want that to take away from this movie of what it's trying to be, because it's trying to be a straight, like, I just said, a straight universal horror movie. Yeah. And he's like, I think if we put you in it, it just makes it too outlandish in a way. And so Brooks agrees to not to not star in it, only to direct it. Um, and they, they go to Columbia. They pitch to Columbia. Columbia's like, okay, we'll let you do it for $1.7 million. And Brooks like, as we're walking out the door, I go, oh, by the way, it's in black and white. And I shut the door and walk out. <laughs> and they go, wait a minute. They, they, they all run after. It's like, what do you mean? You can't shoot it in black and white. He's like, we're going to shoot it in black and white. They go, well, if you're going to shoot it in black and white, we have no deal. He goes, cool. And we had no deal. Uh, he goes over 20th Century Fox is what it is. There's this new executive there by the name of Alan Ladd Jr. And mm-hmm. I want to bring up Alan Ladd Jr. because he's a, it's crazy when you look at the, the movies this guy was involved in. Uh, he's the son of famous actor Alan Ladd. Uh, Ladd Jr. loves this movie. He loves the idea of it, loves the script. He's like, I'll give you what how, like $2 million, $2.2 million to make this movie. And it was kind of one of his first big decisions at 20th Century Fox. And for to see what else Ladd did while just at 20th Century Fox, he does Phantom of the Paradise, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Alien, Breaking Away, all that jazz, 9 to 5, and he's kind of the instrumental player in bringing Star Wars to Fox. Mm-hmm. And fights it when the board of directors wanted to shut down the production. Um, after leaving Fox, he would later do Blade Runner, Moonstruck, The Right Stuff, Body Heat, Thelma and Louise, A Fish Called Wanda, Braveheart, and his company also Gone Baby Gone. Talk about a resume yep. from Alan Light Jr. So he comes in, fights for it, helps it get made. And I think, the, again, going back to I keep saying, the glue to this movie is Gene Wilder. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's his best performance in a movie? Because I think it's his best, fil- best film. As a, I mean, everyone loves Willy Wonka, but I think Wilder just I think, I think this one, does yeah. so much in this movie. I think I think because I mean, the thing with this movie is it it's it's still ta- despite being a parody like you were saying it's still taking itself seriously as a movie so it's not content with just being like okay he gets to you know it's not content with the script just being like he gets to castle frankenstein and now he's crazy you see it happen and, and yeah. you know he goes from being a real person to being this stereotypical mad scientist and so like you have to see that transition happen and he he sells it completely and it's not like like the thing is when he he's like i'm when they go like dr frankenstein you guys he goes it's frankenstein like that like that's Mm -hmm. late in the movie Mm -hmm. like that's i think almost like over an hour it's it's past the midpoint i feel like when he finally becomes frankenstein dr Mm -hmm. frankenstein and it's the same it's it's a great scene of when they've like cat again, Brooks talks about it, it's true of just w- the range that Wilder has when they capture the monster who's played by Pierre Boyle, and he's telling Marty Feldman and Igor, Igor, I as Igor, Igor, uh, and Terry Gar who plays uh, uh, Inga and Gloris Leachman who plays Frau Blucher. Can we can we can we put a horse <laughs> sound effect in, into the podcast? I might do that. So he it's the scene when he's like saying, I'm going to go in there and no matter what I say, do not let me out. 
you open this door, it will undo all of the work. Oh, we've done. done. Like he's so confident. And I, and then right when he walks in and the monster just like gets up and goes, let me out of here. Let me out of here. Let me out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So many things he's doing in that scene. It's amazing. It's amazing Mm -hmm. to watch. And like I said, he really holds it together. And I think he makes just some, with not having Mel Brooks act in it. And, and it sounds like the production was very joyous, very opposite of producers. Because <laughs> uh, at the end of it, Brooks says in this book, he says, like, last day of shooting, we're done. And Gene's still on set. And Gene's still writing scenes. And he's like, Gene, the movie's over. He's like, but I don't want it to be. Like, mm. he's very much fully invested in this film. So this is very much his passion project. And I think it shows. I think every every ounce of this is Gene Wilder, while also Mel Brooks, but I think it's, it's, it's that perfect kind of partnership between the two. Well, and I also think of all the of all the kind of incredible casts that Brooks has put together, and he's got this kind of troupe of recurring characters. I, I think this is my favorite iteration of, yeah. of cast. You've got, you've got Wilder, obviously, in the center, but then Terry Garr. I'm a huge Terry Garr fan. We talked about it during After Hours. Got Madeline Kahn being incredible again. Cloris Leachman, I mean, just amazing amazing uh marty feldman being great you've got kenneth mars in there again yeah it's yeah just... you're really only missing harvey corman at the end yep. of the day like, that's really all you're missing um but everyone else like knocks it out of the park and then yeah gene hackman in there mm-hmm. in there for a scene like that I, would probably unrecognizable i, I unrecognizable. every time i watch this movie i'm like i know that's gene hackman under there and i can't i can't ever tell no one knew it was him until the ending credits when it goes like gene hackman gene hackman was in this movie like no one knew he was in it so apparently what it was going back gene wilder never knew this gene wilder and gene hackman played tennis every saturday is what it was great friends and gene hackman's like thanks gene great yeah thanks gene gene hackman's like what are you working on and wilder tells him the idea of young frankenstein by the way at this point in time gene hackman oscar winning actor like he's one he's one for french connection he's a phenomenal dramatic actor he's he's he, he's a big star in hollywood at this point in time and he's like well do you have a role for me in it and water's like we i think we do you can play the blind man in the movie he goes i've been really wanting to do comedy so i'd love to do it mm-hmm. and basically takes a massive pay cut gets like minor minor billing on the movie just so he can do it as a favor for gene wilder because mm. they're that good of friends and hackman again it's, i love the ending line of just like where are you going i was gonna make espresso <laughs> like it's 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 just it's it's again talking about this idea of like lifting scenes from other movies or other things like if that's a pretty much a scene from was it was it was it Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein? That yes, scene that's in Bride of Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein. Where he, go, he goes and sees a blind man. It's like, it's pretty much beat for beat. It mm-hmm. feels like in the scene, it's just this time, everything's going horribly wrong for the monster where he's like, he's mm-hmm. spilling, is it get, light him on fire or spilling hot coffee on him? Like it takes that, take that scene, but just make it somewhat funny mm-hmm. is the idea. And I think it's, it's a phenomenal scene. That whole movie, like they basically said they watched all the Frankenstein movies over and over again. They read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein like they had so much love for not just the movies, but also the written word of Frankenstein. This is a nice boy. This is a good boy. This is a mother's angel. And I want the world to know once and for all and without any shame 
that we love him. <laughs> oh. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you how to walk, how to speak, how to move, how to think. Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. Dr. Frankenstein, are you all right? My name is Frankenstein! One scene that that Brooks did not want to shoot, but Gene Wilder wanted to shoot. Can you guess what scene it was? Big scene. Somewhat surprising. We've talked about... Oh, putting on the Ritz? Putting on the Ritz. Brooks thought it it broke the fourth wall too much and made the movie silly. And Wilder's like, no, 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 it's going to work. It's going to make it to where like it's going to make it stand out within this kind of world of universal movies. And Brooks like, fine, we'll shoot it. And then we'll test it. But if it does poorly, we're cutting it out. And it, it was ended up being like the mo- like the, the most liked scene of the test screening. Hmm. And it's also just a phenomenal scene. Again, Gene Wild and Peter Boyle's amazing in it in that and as as the monster. Mm-hmm. But yeah, fantastic scenes overall. It ends up being nominated for best sound, and it ends up being nominated for best adapted screenplay because it's based off of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. The movie inspired kind of the more, the most most well known tidbit. The movie inspired Aerosmith's "Walk This Way," the song, mm-hmm. because of Marty Feldman's bit "Walk This Way," and Gene Wilder follows it. Apparently, I think Aerosmith was like recording their album. They they went to see Young Frankenstein, heard that like, that's a good song title, and that's what inspired that song. The actual sets in the original original Frankenstein were used in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently an old production designer had them stashed in his garage in Santa Monica and they realized that found it, brought it in and the, all the stuff still worked. Nice. It would make $86 million off a $2.78 million budget. So we moved from this big, huge year of 1974 of him doing two of his prize two his two best films. So the two movies he does right after that are silent movie and high anxiety and silent movie feels just like, I'm going to call my famous friends mm-hmm. and we're going to make a movie. It's about essentially a trio of friends. It's Mel Brooks, Marty Feldman and Dom DeLuise. And they're going to make a basically it's like I said, it's set in like modern day. I think is what it is Yeah, where it's like, Hey, we're going to make a silent movie. No one's made them in years. And the whole movie, whole thing is them trying to make a silent movie. Uh, when the studio is telling a silent them no. Movie. In a silent movie. And like the cast, when usually it's just like Burt Reynolds, James Caan, Liza Minnelli, Anne Bancroft, Marcel Marceau, Paul Newman, a who's who. And it costs $4 million, gets like five Golden Globe nominations, weirdly. A Writers Guild of America Best Comedy Screenplay nomination. Does well critics. Again, another four stars from Roger Ebert. And it really just kind of, I think he had two big hits, but this kind of solidifies him like, cool. He can kind of do whatever. Mm-hmm. He literally just released a silent movie with him, Marty Feldman, Don DeLuise. And, and a ton of famous people. This is one I I, I, I found out of the box set and, and really enjoyed as a teenager because it has it has Muppets energy to me. Yeah, you know, it's that's just fair. Kind of like yeah. Moving yeah. from set piece to set piece with a lot of little cameos and and just kind of having a good time. Yeah. And 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 that's a that's a fair point to bring up. Uh, yeah, I saw it. My my drama teacher in high school told me to watch it. Is why I watched it. Um, it was this in camp. 
Thomas was this in camp. Um, <laughs> they wanted to show you a, a, a fun movie and then an awful movie. <laughs> I want to give that to you. Um, but yeah, it, it's a fun film. It really is. And and to think about like it making $36 million at the box office, like not as big as his last two hits, but like, again, I'm not expecting a silent movie to make that much money uh, in this period. Uh, ends up starting a kind of collaboration with... Um, Ron Clark, uh, Rudy De Luca, who ends up being in almost all the movies after this, and Barry Levinson, future director of Diner, Good Morning Vietnam, The Natural, and uh, Rain Man, mm-hmm. co- co-writes this movie, and this leads into his next film because again he's like, oh, I'm I'm really doing well in these parody genres. I'm gonna parody another genre. What's another genre I can do? Oh, well, Hitchcock's a genre in himself. Mm-hmm. Let's just do a Hitchcock movie. And that leads to High Anxiety in 1977, Silent Movies 1976, and High Anxiety, written by, I think, the entire same group of four guys, uh, do this movie. And so what is High Anxiety about, Thomas? High Anxiety is about uh, Mel Brooks playing the main character, who's a psychologist who has just taken over this uh, asylum after the previous uh, doctor running it has mysteriously died. and all these conspiracies in in the in the vein of hitchcock all these conspiracies unveil and also we learn that he has high anxiety which is basically vertigo um (laughs) you know but this crippling fear of heights but yeah as it plays out we see kind of that that hitchcock theme of like an innocent man who has no idea what he's caught up in uh plays out throughout and then and we get lots of little scene full scene homages to to other hitchcock stuff which is a little bit of a turn every time. It's like, I, honestly, one of my favorite scenes, very surprising, is the psycho recreation. Mm-hmm. Barry Levinson is, is amazing in that scene. And I was like, who is that guy? And I was like, oh, it's Barry Levinson, the writer, director of Ring Man. Well, it's just, you know, <laughs> with, with some of the ones that he does, like with his with the birds, you know, you can see the birds one coming a mile yes. away. He's sitting yeah, in his yeah. park and you see a jungle gym behind him and the birds start landing and you're like, and they start pooping and you're like, oh, okay, the joke is that birds poop. You have no idea. I've seen this movie multiple <laughs> times and it had been a few years when I came back to it this time. I'm like, I, I remember there's something important about him asking, being like, so, because it's, it's, he's just kind of rude to this bellboy about getting him a newspaper. And I'm like, why, why now is this newspaper thing important? And then I was like, oh, yeah. When he starts to like get in the shower, I was like, "Oh, here it comes! It's the psycho scene." And it's just here, here, here. It's the, it's the, it's the repetitive like yeah. strings, basically. Yeah. So apparently, when making it, uh, it seems like Mel Brooks is a lot. If he was like making fun of someone or a specific thing that someone like was attached to, he would call them up. So he called mm-hmm. up Hitchcock, who he's never met before, and he's like, "Hey, you probably don't know me. My name is Mel Brooks." He goes, "Oh my god, I love Blazing Saddles." Is what Hitchcock <laughs> says um and he goes well we're make we're trying to write a movie and we're kind of we're, we did a parody film with silent movie of a genre and we're doing this with you was we were writing he goes okay cool come by my office on friday we'll have lunch and we'll just get i'll read the script or i'll read the outline of what you have so hitchcock reads the outlines like this is really good let's just meet every friday and i'll give you notes in the script every friday really? oh, so man. basically every every at the end of every week he would go to hitchcock's office on universal hand them the work they'd done that week and Hitchcock would go over it and give his thoughts or notes or whatever on the script. Wow. So this is very much like, that's why he dedicates it to him at the beginning of the movie. Cause again, it's very much a loving tribute to 
Alfred Hitchcock to a point where Hitchcock's somewhat involved in the tribute to himself. Mm-hmm. And he kind of knows like, oh, make this a little bit funny or whatever. He, he like kind of adds little notes and stuff. Like, oh, no, I would never do that. I would do this instead. Like, and that really kind of helps shape the story of the film. Yeah, again, great cast. Again, Madeline Kahn, Cloris Leachman, Harvey Corman. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in Madeline Kahn, it's the it's the phones, it's the phone call scene. <laughs> <laughs> but again, just the again, the turn she can do where she's just like, How dare you? What are you wearing? Like, just like she just she oh, just I knew, like I knew it was you. I knew, I knew it was you the entire time. I knew it was you the entire time. Uh-huh. Were you laughing? I was laughing. And, and another one I want to shout out. We we talked about Barry Levinson kind of stepping in as the bellboy. Um, one of the other writers, Rudy DeLuca, plays yeah. the 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 hitman <laughs> as braces. Very, yeah, very obviously a uh, Joss. <laughs> yes, but Bond. but also this you know this idea of like very openly like sexually turned on by yeah by, murder. by, by murdering people. I would love yeah. to do it. Thank you so much. <laughs> And that's, you know, that, that's something I, I looked into him this past time watching High Anxiety and, and realized then that he was a writer. But he came off of the he came up writing for Tim Conway on his show, which Tim Conway was also very famously comedy partner with Harvey Corman. Yeah. So, you know, it's just all it's all mixed up in that comedy world. But it really uh, is. And, and you just see kind of all that like play together. Like he, Mel Brooks, it's interesting because we'll go into some with Spaceballs a little bit. Like you see him work with like other comedians that are big in other ways, but are just somehow in a Mel Brooks movie. I think of John Candy or Rick Moranis and Spaceballs. Like just how they kind of all kind of like to kind of like collaborate in some way together. Yeah. And I, I think something really cool, High Anxiety is a little less i think user friendly because a lot of the stuff he's making fun of is so specific yeah. to hitchcock movies and and to people who like study hitchcock movies you know like you could you could casually watch a bunch of hitchcock movies and still not get the joke when they say that like mr mcguffin called and changed yeah <laughs> his room reservation like that is something you have to be like reading papers about hitchcock to know you know really what a MacGuffin is i mean even down to the point where he's putting all this work into like make these jokes about the way hitchcock uses his camera you know they've got they've got this kind of shot like making fun of the shot the opening shot in psycho where you come the camera comes in from like really far and yeah. comes into the window they try and do that twice and like keep breaking the the stage and then I think is it a is it a joke on the the lodger that I when he when they're shooting up from under the the table oh it's the table and they keep, yeah they keep like covering up the camera because you know that yeah. was a shot in the lodger that Hitchcock came up with was to like shoot up through the floor and have yeah see the, the feet going like, walking around yeah he wanted to make the camera a character in High Anxiety because it kind of is a character in Hitchcock's movies mm-hmm. and so yeah it's like you get he actually gives the camera a personality which is very interesting. Of like, you know, like I said, it's that scene when, when it's Cloris Leachman and Harvey Corman talking over their plans and they just keep putting plates down in front of the glass table. The camera keeps moving around and you can actually feel the camera getting frustrated with <laughs> having to move. Like it's, it's, jerky, it's, yeah. it's really it's really brilliant of what what he does with that. Um, yeah, I think it's fantastic. I think I think he really captured what a Hitchcock movie is. And he was he was always worried like what Hitchcock was going to think. Because Hitchcock had seen, had read the script, but he didn't see the movie until the premiere. And he said that when the movie was done, Hitchcock just got up and left and didn't speak to Brooks. He's like, oh, God, he hates it. And he got like a long letter the next day talking about how great it was and how much he loved it. And like gave a bottle of wine 
And so he he was very he was like that's who I was like wanting to like impress. If I can impress anyone, it was Hitchcock. Another thing I love is him singing High Anxiety in mm-hmm. in in, in, in like, the, like very Frank Sinatra esque yeah. number High Anxiety. Like it's it's fantastic. All, all of his movies have a have this really good musical moment, as you said. It's you that I blame. It's very clear to me I've got to give in My anxiety You win So, High Anxiety does it's it's more mixed with critics i think uh it does fine i think it's the first one though that ebert gives two and a half stars to all the rest have been four star movies from ebert Mm. this is the first one that kind of wasn't but the movie again makes 31 million dollars it's a box office success the success of this movie allows brooks to make to create his production company brooks films and the 1980s kind of ushers in a way where he makes five movies in the seventies. He only makes two in the eighties, but he's producing a lot. Mm-hmm. So he produces the elephant man and they, they, they pick David Lynch to do it. Cause David Lynch had just done a racer head and mm-hmm. the, in his book, he talks about going to the new art theater where we would go to a lot. And he's like, yeah, it was very like odd theater. They play like John Waters films. When we went to see Eraserhead. <laughs> they loved it. He met, he's like, I met David Lynch. I was still kind of like, is he right for elephant man? And he's like, I met with him. I think they met some like cafe somewhere. And I met Bob's Burgers in Burbank is what it was. And he's like, oh, David Lynch totally gets this movie. Hires David Lynch for it. Um, then he does The Fly and he hi- they hired David Cronenberg. Uh, the studio doesn't want to cast Jeff Goldblum. Mel Brooks fights to cast Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. Wow. Essentially make- making his career. Um, and both these movies, like he doesn't have his name on it. Because he's aware if they see uh, the Elephant Man presented by Mel, Mel Brooks, Brooks <laughs> yeah, or the Fly presented by Mel Brooks, they'll think it's a comedy and they won't take it seriously. Yeah. So he he literally just creates this like prestige fair with those two films, uh, with eighty four Sharing Crossroad, which I think is a a lovely film with Anne Bancroft, and Anthony Hopkins that you should go check out if you can find. He has To Be or Not to Be, which him and Bancroft star in, which you've seen, correct? That's the mm-hmm. one. You, how do you feel about that movie? It's it's just like they literally just took the original and recast it with like Mel Brooks people. So yeah, it's 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 fine. It's OK. Yeah. OK. <laughs> but like, yeah, it, it's it's a big kind of less director, more producer at this mm-hmm. moment in time. He makes two movies in the 80s, 1981 History of the World Part One. 97s for space balls so what's history of the world part one about thomas <laughs> it's about the the history of the entire world <laughs> um it's 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 his sketch movie you know he's yeah, it's never, his monty python movie is what i say he's, it's he's his monty never python. really done a sketch movie and this is it and um so you have a couple of things you have like a an, an extended caveman sketch with sid caesar that's like very much like clowning just a lot of, of clowning you get a, a very quick but iconic moses sketch you get a, a, a longer Roman Empire sketch, um, and then you get, I'll go ahead and, and expose myself, you get the best 10 minutes of film that Mel Brooks ever directed. This is not this is not Mel Brooks' best movie. <laughs> it's kind of middle of the road for me, because yeah, same. the longer sketches are, neither of the longer sketches work for me, and then you get a, yeah. a French Revolution sketch at the end. Neither of the longer sketches really work for me. I like the shorter ones, but the Spanish Inquisition 
is the best 10 minutes Mel Brooks ever directed. It is fantastic. Um, it is a, a send up of the classic Hollywood movie musical. Yeah. Complete with synchronized swimmers, dancing, huge sets, uh, you know, these huge, like intense, you know, crafted sets. And mm-hmm. uh, it's all about the, the Spanish Inquisition and Mel Brooks sings and dances and plays Torquemada, the grand inquisitor <laughs> of the Spanish Inquisition. You can't and talk it, about anything. You, you can't talk. You can't talk about anything. It's it's so. Oh man, it is so good. I mean, the the song is great. The choreography is fantastic. You've got some incredible sight gags. Brooks is just it seems to be having a blast. <laughs> I I love the. Um, he's like, I just got back from the auto de fe. Auto de fe. What's an auto de fe? It's when you know that you oughtn't, but you do it anyway. <laughs> I that, this is the best part of the film. This is easily the best for and like and one of his best moments he's done. And again, like I think it's the one where you really see like him pushing that musical even farther. Mm-hmm. Like it's like that's the beginnings of what you see in the producers and what he does on Broadway later. Like it's really in that moment where you see it. It, it completely understands what a like golden age movie musical yeah. piece would be. And then it's just like, what if we shot it, choreographed it, put it together exactly like one of those old Broadway review movies, but we made it about the Spanish Inquisition and we are yeah. literally torturing people during the segment. It's 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 fantastic. And I mean, you get some you get some really fun other stuff. You've got Dom DeLuise and Malin Khan as, yeah. as kind of like Caesar and, and the yeah, his his uh, this kind of kind of cleopatra character yeah. her name um, is em- empress nympho is what her name is um <laughs> uh, yeah you got you've got harvey corman back you've you've got some some really fun stuff and then yeah. you know of course you've got mel brooks's moses with the the 15 commandments um yeah. but yeah i think i think both of the longer sketches lose some steam for me the the running around in the rome the roman empire one runs a little too long and then somehow the French revolution one kind of turns into the same thing as like, Oh, this group, this group on the run. But um, overall, I mean, it's still got some really fun stuff, like I said, and it, and it blessed us with the the Spanish inquisition sequence. It's not the weakest for me because I like the movie. I don't love the movie. I think this is the one movie where he goes against his own advice on how to make this type movie. Mm. It's like he said, always have an engine going forward. Like always have like a story going forward. And this is the one that doesn't have any of that. It's just, yeah, like I, said, it's I think sketches. it just, it, it needed to either be, because then he tries, he tries to make this story for these, these two, the, the yeah. Roman empire and the, the French revolution. And I think it needed to either be one or the other. And I, I would have preferred, I'd be interested to see, you know, if it, if it had just been sketches, I would have, I would have been curious to see that, but yeah, I, I, it just kind of lose those, those two, like it's, it gets so much momentum with these quick, little jokes and then it just like really dips in those those two other parts the inquisition what a show the inquisition here we go we know you're wishing that we'd go away but the inquisition's here and it's here to stay oh boy the inquisition watch on the inquisition oi oi so six year break and then he ends up doing space balls so mm-hmm. uh, Thomas, what is Spaceballs about? 
Spaceballs is is Star Wars. It's Star uh, Wars. Essentially, it's actually, it is. You know what? You know what it is though. I always say something. This is a screwball comedy. I yeah. didn't realize <laughs> it was the screwball comedy. The plot is it happened one night. Oh yeah, she's she's on the run from a. She's on the run from a wedding. Okay, calls yeah. up a guy who who's gonna make a lot of money to bring her back to her father. Ends up falling in love with her. So yeah, it's okay. Lone Star. Yeah. Lone Star played play Bill, Bill Pullman, who's kind of the Han Solo, Luke Skywalker esque, and his best friend Barf are. I'll I'll just tell the story since up here. <laughs> um, uh, 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 are asked by uh, Dick Van Patten, King Roland to say or to to go find his daughter princess vespa and her kind of droid guardian dot matrix by joan rivers princess vespa played by uh daphne uh, S- uh suniga i apologize she's kind of the parody of princess leia barf is parody of chewbacca and again it's basically just parodies of star wars characters and uh lone star and them are trying to rescue princess vespa and and stay away from the clutches of dark helmets played by <laughs> rick moranis Wonderfully by Rick Moranis. Mm-hmm. Bill Pullman. I think it's his, his his like screen debut. It's definitely really? his leading. It's his lead day. De- it's his. Yeah. He's only done two movies. I th- sorry. Not as not as not as uh, uh, debut, but it's his lead. His, his lead debut. Basically, he's been two movies previously and Bancroft again. And Mel Brooks saw him in a play and they cast him because Brooks realized, cool, I got two of the biggest comedy stars right now in the world with John Candy, and Rick Moranis. I can cast unknown the lead. Mm-hmm. Do you know who was apparently they offered it to allegedly offered it to before Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise? Oh, okay. Tom Hanks would work. Tom Cruise would not. I'm sorry. Like, I yeah. just, I don't, I don't think Tom Cruise would work. Uh, but Bill Pullman's great in it. I feel like this is the one. It's this or Robin Hood. That's the best like entry point for people who are getting into Mel Brooks, especially when you're young. I mean, for for me, being being someone who at, at thirteen was trying hard to figure out how to introduce my fellow thirteen year old friends into Mel Brooks, yeah, this is the one. Just because no matter what, every every thirteen year old boy has seen Star Wars. Like everyone yeah. knows what they're making fun of here. So what what's a favorite part of yours from uh, from Spaceballs? Oh man, any any scene with Rick Moranis, honestly. <laughs> absolutely any scene that he's in rick moranis and michael winslow the beeps the bloops and the yeah (laughs) the blur and the sweeps yeah right sweeps mr coffee you know any any literally anything that happens on that control deck with rick moranis (laughs) is absolutely (laughs) incredible dom delwey's uh pizza to hut yeah also that's uh Rudy Rudy Luca, yeah Yeah. (laughs) as the mob guy yeah anything with john candy i mean it this this is one it's you know, we talked about this whole cast that he put together, and then this is kind of like one off for a lot yeah, of the it people. Really, that it were really in this does. One. Yeah. And Joan Rivers, like he doesn't really work with any of the rest of these people again, but it works in this in this movie, the one the, the cast that he puts together. Like the only three guys are basically Dom Delaways, Reed Luca, and Dick Van Patten. The rest mm-hmm. are just all like other oh, and then he's in it too. I mean that one that he John Hurt, who I think was in History of the World Part One as well does the cameo of his character from alien in this movie, which is the one I, again. It's like, I saw this Not before this alien. <laughs> I oh, saw this God. before alien. <laughs> so I was just like, Oh, they're ripping this from space boss. Like when I see alien or whatever. No, but like, it's just like, Oh, that's where that comes from. Like, yeah. that's when you start, when you get older, you start piecing. Oh, that, Oh, that comes from like 2001 space odyssey or, uh, cause the opening of space balls is like star Wars. Also kind of 2001, also, Jaws. The music is like dun. dun. Yep, you get Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes at the end. 
I dare, dare, dear me, who, what's that climbing out of his nose? Space uh, balls. balls. The, oh shit, there goes the plan. <laughs> Visually, it's not as interesting as, say, Young Frankenstein, but production design is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, this is the thing with, I think this is the last one to me where, like, the production design feels like high value. I really do think after this, I feel like it starts to feel a little bit cheaper. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I think I Robin so. Hood starts to feel a little cheap, sadly, in its production design. Not saying it was cheap, but just, I think it's just the way, it's the changing of the times is kind of the thing. Mm-hmm. Like, this still feels, this feels like a Star Wars movie with how it, like, with the production design of it, with the spaceships and all that stuff, uh, with, like, with the, uh, whatever, with Spaceball 1 that they're on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's kind of amazing. Yeah, so he ends up getting, he ends up having George Lucas approve the script, by the way. <laughs> so Lucas approves it. Uh, the only thing Lucas said was, uh, you can't have, a- you can't release action figures for Spaceballs. Because <laughs> they would be. Spaceballs, the lunchbox. Yeah, like, I don't think they did any merch for it. But he basically said, he's like, oh, this is all great. It's totally fine. Can't do action figures because they look too much like Star Wars action figures. And if they're buying Spaceballs action figures, you're taking money out of my pocket. <laughs> because Lucas, how, at this how, point... How much George Lucas cared yeah. about merchandising. Merchandising. Luke, yeah, and that's why Mel Brooks adds that scene of merchandising was because Lucas said he couldn't do action figures. And then it's, and then it's so well incorporated through the rest of the movie. Yeah. You've got Spaceballs, the blank, like everywhere through the rest everywhere. of the movie. Everywhere. Everywhere. And I know they, did, they didn't merch for it either. I think it was just like, that was just... Because he says in the book, he's like... Every few years, someone tries to pitch me like Spaceballs the cereal, mm. and I'm just like, yeah, that's it. that looks great. Can't do it. Um, <laughs> like, so it's just very funny to see that happen. And he said, he said the book. This is the one that everyone like. This is the one he hears about the most from fans is Spaceballs. I think I think it is up there with Young Frankenstein as it's the most quotable. Like it is, it is yeah. so full of one liners. And I know when I was twelve. I, I and I still think it's hilarious. I'm not. I'm not trying to put it down. But when I was 12, I thought I see that your Schwartz is as big as mine was <laughs> the funniest thing I had ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. I thought it was so funny. I, well, I realized too when watching this, I was like, oh, I I use some of these like in my current like life, <laughs> like like one, but unknowingly, not to be a joke. It's like one thing I always say: you're right, and when you're right, you're right. And you're right. Yeah. I'll say that a lot. Yeah. And that's what Candy says as Barb to Bill Pullman at one point. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's where I that's where I got that from. Oh, when you're right, you're right. And when you're right, you're right. He also used Skywalker sound and Lucas's post-production people to handle the sound and the effects of the film too. So he said, if you're gonna if you're gonna just make fun of it, you might as well get the people who do it. Well, you don't need that private. We're right here. Now what is it? Now what is it? I'm having trouble with the radar, sir. What's wrong with it? I've lost the bleeps, I've lost the sweeps, and I've lost the creeps. The what? The what? And the what? You know, the bleeps. The sweeps. And the creeps. That's not all he's lost. <gasps> sir, the radar, sir. It appears to be jammed. Jammed. Raspberry. There's only one man who would dare give me the raspberry. Lone Star. It doesn't do well 
critically, it gets kind of mixed reviews when it comes out. Again, it kind of becomes a cult classic. Uh, it won Worst Picture at the 1987 Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. The Stinkers. Kind of, kind of the ra- but Razzies. The worst Razzies? Yeah, it's basically, it's 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 what was happening with the Razzies. Ra- there was Razzies in this at one point. Razzies kept going. This did not keep going. Hmm. It ended up making $38 million on a $22 million budget. Uh, you know what movie was number one at the box office when it came out, though? Mm-mm. Or I don't know, number one, but it was finished behind it. Dragnet with Tom Hanks and Dan. Oh, another another parody film. Another parody film. Um, so after this movie, the 90s kind of comes and he does three movies. He does Life Stinks, Robin Hood Men in Tights, and Dracula Dead and Loving It. Life Stinks is basically Mel Brooks's Sullivan's Travels. Mel Brooks plays this like L.A. business guy, real estate builder, like very like Donald Trump-esque in a way. And he has a bet with a, a, a business rival that he could live in like the slums of L.A. for 30 days. And if he does that, he'll get this piece of land that's that slums they can take and like build a big, huge like building for himself. It's like mm. two that basically the patch of land. Mel Brooks buys half of it. Jeffrey Tambor owns the other half of it. They have a ba- they have a, a, a wager because Jeffrey Tambor says he was from the area that if Mel Brooks can live in the air for 30 days, like on his own and be like homeless or whatever, he can get the full thing and build his like big, huge, uh, like building he's wanting to do. So Mel Brooks goes off and lives in the, in the streets for 30 days. Uh, Leslie Ann Warren from clue is in it. She's great. There's, there's a few, there's a really great musical sequence in it too. With them, they have this great kind of like, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers number in like a, a, a dress factory or something that they or fabric factory uh, they're in. Hmm. It's one of his more dramatic movies. And I think there's moments that really work. And then I think it kind of falls flat a lot of the time. It's one of his lesser movies. I do think he does a great, good performance in it. Uh, it's because, again, it's more dramatic. I, I liked it more than I was expecting to, but I didn't love it was the thing. Hmm. That's 1991. Then 1993, he does Robin Hood Tights. So Thomas, what is Robin Hood Tights about? Robin Hood Tights is just a, literally the story of Robin Hood told <laughs> almost exactly as it appears in the book, but with jokes. <laughs> this is why I watched this time. I didn't love as much as I remembered. I feel like this is the one where like, it's just too long. It needs mm. to be like 15, 20 minutes shorter. Just the, everything goes, everything goes on too long in this movie. Yeah. I can I can see that this was one I didn't I I don't think I saw Robin Hood Men in Tights like this is one that it was weird because like I was introduced to him through Young Frankenstein and Spaceballs and a lot of my friends had only seen Robin Hood Men in Tights I I think because it was more recent some of my friends like had it on VHS probably I didn't see this one until I bought the box set oh wow so I was already probably like 15 16 and and I this one never really clicked for me although I I love Carrie Elway's He's he's better in Princess Bride, uh, but he's still playing on that same kind of like dry, ironic humor in this. And uh, nobody nobody does it like him. You know, nobody does yeah. like a, a swashbuckle and then like a little eyebrow wag into the camera like him. But um, and Richard Lewis is a lot of fun. But yeah, it, it, I don't know. It's almost as if this one's a little too silly. You know, it's yeah, it's he, he if Spaceballs, if, if Young Frankenstein is like we are making a universal monster movie and we're going to put jokes into it but we're going to take it as seriously as we can and Spaceballs is like somewhere in the middle yeah 
Robin Hood is is a little too silly for me, but it's still it's still yeah. a lot of fun. And, and, and it's another example of, you know, not really playing with anybody from his original cast, but yeah. still putting together a really, really fun group of people. And and I think at this point in his career, just people who are excited to get to work with Mel Brooks and it shows like the, yeah. the energy among the cast is is really great. I mean, I, I, I think Chappelle's good in it, too. Patrick Stewart, Tracy Ullman, I think is great. Tracy mm. Ullman as Latrine and Roger Rees is really fun. They're, he they're is, kind of he is. anti anti chemistry, I guess. But the way they they play off of each other is yeah. Is might be really, some of the best really scenes. The, might be some of the best scenes in the movie of like of, of when they're together, and it's very they're not in a lot of scenes together. Um, yeah, it feels like comparing it to Spaceballs is smart because like Spaceballs feels like cool. This is when he's. I feel like he's getting more into like actually trying to reference the movies that are coming out more if that makes mm. sense and he did it with high anxiety but still there's a few years removed from some of the big hitchcock stuff but this one space feels like cool we're like two years two or three years out of uh return of the jedi that's we're referencing star wars this feels like cool we're like a year or two removed from robin hood prince of thieves let's just kind of parody robin hood prince of thieves and brooks had actually done a robin hood parody before in the 1970s but it was a tv show called when things were rotten mm-hmm. and but yeah i think he's i think it's like it's like too it's too silly i agree with you i think it's also venturing too much into what's current is the thing like we're referencing stuff that's more current and that hurts over time i think that even goes to the next movie of dracula dead, dead and loving it i think that feels like cool we're making fun of uh, it feels like we're trying to make more fun of like Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula mm-hmm. is what it is. Yeah. So what is Dracula dead loving it about Thomas? Once again, it's pretty, they, they, they take a couple it's of basically creative, Dracula. Yeah. A, a couple of creative licenses, but fairly close to Bram Stoker's Dracula with, with a couple of simplifications uh, to make it a little bit smaller of a film. But uh, yeah, with Leslie Nielsen as Dracula, um, Harvey Corman back for for yeah. Mel Brooks's last directorial film. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, it's I actually just saw this one for the first time for this episode. <laughs> this was so one did I. That, so it was did just I. not not part of I don't it was was this with a different studio? I don't know. It was just never part of like any of the other stuff. Like it, it felt like it was not I know I know a lot of people who are a little bit older than me who would have been like teenagers preteens like when yeah. this came out like are very fond of it but um yeah just saw, just saw it for the first time yeah Love peter mcnichol yeah. i'm a big i'm a big peter mcnichol guy so i think he, he's, he's i think, he's, he, I think he's actually good in it um yeah. you know, amy amy yazbeck who's in robin hood men tights too who i like in robin hood men tights has made marion it's it's she's she's it's, she's fine this i just think like this one uh it's like it's it just doesn't capture the magic of what young Frankenstein does. Mm-hmm. Cause like the whole point is to parody Dracula films like he did Frankenstein films, but every, everything just kind of feels off to me. Like I, I like some of the people in it, like Pierre McNichol, but it's just like, I, I do wonder if it was shot in black and white, would it be better? Mm. Is the thing because it, just, it feels just, it, it again, it feels like we're, it's, it's really getting close to, what became the parody genre yeah but i mean i think they definitely made like it, it's not i don't think it's like lost stylistically i think they, they definitely made the stylistic choice to put it as close to the the um fr- the recent francis ford coppola version which would have been like what two years 
before this one it was it was early 90s i think it was 92 yeah. or 93 and this was 95 so that, that's definitely the conscious decision there to make it look like that instead of you know the, the bella lugosi version or or nosferatu or one of those especially with his you know the the dumb hair from that, that movie. yeah from gary oldman's they, they yeah make it just is like weird hair hat in this one yeah it, this one just didn't click for me. It was it was a, like a surprisingly, even though it was kind of silly, there's also like kind of a lack of gags in yeah. it for the, the multiple scenes I'd sit, I was watching. I'm just like, well, they have we haven't made a gag at all in this scene. Um, so, yeah, weird kind of kind of strange energy in this one. Yeah. One of my my favorite parts, though, is the shadow stuff they do with Leslie Nielsen, mm-hmm. where yeah. it's like they're like you see a shadow. And that's like how he really feels inside. Mm-hmm. um yeah visually it, it does i think it's trying to capture like the hammer stuff like it very much feels like horror of dracula with christopher lee is what i think it's trying to like aim for uh but yeah it's just it's it's the laughs aren't really there for me in this one and it would be the last movie he directed like yep. he, he he has as of 2022 it's the last movie he's directed i think he's up he's he's supposed to be doing weirdly enough a hulu variety series apparently history of the world part two is what mm. he's supposed to do mm-hmm. I think he was supposed to do Young Frankenstein live uh, like for ABC before COVID, but then COVID happened. Um, but yes, yeah, so this one didn't do well. I, I think the last three movies he did, Life Stinks, Robin Men in Tights, and this one all kind of did poorly critically. Um, I think Men in Tights was the big, was the one that actually made a little bit of money. Yeah, it made $72 million on a $20 million budget. But Dracula was... Ten million dollars on a thirty million dollar budget is what it made. Ten million dollars. Wow. Uh, and life life stinks. Made four million dollars on a thirteen million dollar budget. So like it was his his hit streak that happened in the seventies and eighties was kind of slowing down. But who would have thought he then transitions to Broadway mm-hmm. after this and does the producers in Young Frankenstein? But the producers wins 12 tonys and becomes this massive was huge was huge like it's insane like when you think about like like every like the big thing like hamilton's the one that everyone knows like it's the one that really hits the mainstream nowadays but like this one more tonys than hamilton is the thing (laughs) that you look at it's kind of crazy to think but it did and but it's also one where like it became it became so big with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick is that you kind of can't see it without them in it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it's one where like, I think once the, once they were out of it, like all the ticket sales went down is what it was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so he's kind of, he's not, I mean, he's not, he's about to turn 96 this year, I believe. So like, I'm not expecting him. Hasn't he given us enough Brandon to go direct a movie? I think he's given us a lot. Um, and so that, let's le- that that leads into stats a little bit too with this because like he's one of the few people that actually has the EGOT. He has an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Tony's for the producers, Oscar for uh, the producers, and uh, that that animated short he did. Uh, Emmy for uh, a Sid Caesar variety show, but also like Mad About You. He was on Mad About You for a bit. As like, I think a guest star and won some Emmys that way, and then a Grammy he won for. Uh, 2000 year old man uh in, t- in the year 2000 is what it was him and carl mm. reiner it came out in 1998 real quick on um on stats with this what do you think are his top three most popular films oh god letterbox i don't know because it might be these it might be some kids watching robin hood men in tight uh no it, it's it's the easy ones it's the easy ones young frankenstein yep blazing saddles yep 
Producers? Nope, that's four. Spaceballs? Spaceballs number three. Okay. Uh, can you guess the bottom three? Life stinks. Yep, no, that's the bottom one. Twelve chairs. Yep, that's the that's the second at the bottom. Dracula? No. No. Uh, silent movie. Silent movie is, there is, you go. is. Uh, and then now let's go with uh average rating on Letterboxd. Top three, bottom three. Top three is Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, and Spaceballs. Nope. Producers. Producers, yes. Okay. Uh, what are your bottom three? Uh, Life stinks. Yep, that's the bottom one. I disagree with chairs, the, yes. Twelve chairs. Not that I agree with it, but no, it's not in the bottom three. Okay. That's, that's, well, number, that's I guess that's four. one of the things. If you watch it, you you, you yeah. enjoy it. Uh, yeah. Dracula. Dracula is bottom number two. And I don't know. I don't know the third one. Robin Hood Men in Tights. Robin Hood Men in Tights. Okay. Yeah. It's so his last three movies are his le- lowest rated on on here. So that probably says something. All right. Final questions. Is Mel Brooks not tour Thomas? <laughs> That you know, that's a tough one because I think he spent so much of his career. I think he's got a great eye for all tours, but I think he, he spent so much of, of his career trying to, you know, recreate slash parody these styles that he never really established one of his own. I think he's definitely got you know recurring jokes and a cast that he works with a lot, but you can't throw in that like visual flair because I think he is very talented visually. Yeah. But he never really wanted to make a Mel Brooks style because he he and I, I do think he has a very good eye for recreating these yeah, visual styles, um which is a credit to itself. But yeah, I, I wouldn't I don't know, I wouldn't go so far as to call him an auteur, I think. No, I th- I think again it's like he has a specific like comedic rhythm in a mm-hmm. way in a lot of his films that feel like a Mel Brooks, like, you'll, you'll like, oh, that feels like a Mel Brooks movie. But yeah, I don't know if you see like his stamp as like a, and, as and an I think, you know, I think today the auteur theory is, you know, this idea that the director is the ultimate author of the film. And I think we definitely established today that like his collaborations, especially with Gene Wilder kind of propped up some of his best work. So I think that, yeah, I think it's, I, I don't think he would take that, you know, he, he was a very collaborative person. I don't think he would want that put and upon him. And kind of creating like a writer's room of all of his movies, mm-hmm. basically, after his first two. So, yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, what are his running themes? <laughs> I think I think the, I think the two guys on a journey and like the, yeah, the group on a journey sure. is, a, is a is a big one that that reoccurs in a majority of his films. If it's Spaceballs, if it's Twelve Chairs, Producers, Blazing Saddles. Uh, and he, he also has a lot. A lot of his themes are kind of a lot of his characters are, you know, it's 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 you know the hero's journey but the idea of someone who who is kind of has greatness forced upon them i guess you know yeah. a lot of his movies start with these people who are not intending to get involved in in whatever they do and end up in, and kind of get sucked into it that's fair yeah yeah bill pullman that way i think in Spaceballs is that way i mean even even leo bloom starting with leo bloom yeah, through leo bloom cleavon little's character to frankenstein frankenstein that's fair yeah um all right so uh what genres does he work with then <laughs> everything everything parody but parody parody, yes. parody is the big thing spoofs um all right so final genre questions regarding parody uh are there any films we didn't talk about that you want to bring in real quick and kind of kind of reference i, I do want to kind of shout out i think i, I was trying to think like because we've talked a lot about how kind of like in the in the late 2000s this was kind of killed off and i was i've been trying to think as we're doing this month like where is parody now and i think it's all in television you know i think yeah. i think there's been some really really solid parody work 
in television. And, and one I, I do want to shout out is uh, there was a show on NBC. Brandon, I've, I've tried to talk Brandon into watching this on several times oh, yeah. called Trial and Error. Yeah. And it was a parody of true crime podcasts specifically. And so the first season was a parody of uh, the, the Staircase, which is now becoming an HBO Max series. And the second season was a parody of S Town, which was a hugely popular podcast at the time. Yeah. But it it has that kind of like spoof energy that um, that I feel like we've been missing. And then also, I definitely need to shout out uh, what we do in the shadows, which I think is the best spoof. In that was my pick. Yeah. 20, 25 years, probably. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think that is kind of one of the best out there in terms of like that feels like a full on parody. I mean, it might be considered a parody, but one I really like is Galaxy Quest, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think it kind of captures the Star Trek nature, not just that, but also the fandom of Star Trek. 21 Jump Street is also very fun. I, I throw yeah, that in there as a, as a really sure. good one of a putty cop one. And then finally, what's what did you learn overall this month, Thomas? I, I definitely think I, I had an idea of like parody movies that i liked and parody movies i didn't like but i never sat mm-hmm. down and like found those dividing lines and i and i think yeah. we've obviously we've, we've brought it up several times but i think it's i think it's that love like you you have yeah. to have a passion for the movie you're parodying and if you don't start with that as a building block you're just lost from the start yeah i agree completely i think that was that was when i didn't know going into it and you just realized that that's what separates like said that's what separates the good from the bad um I weirdly learned that no one really laughs in test screenings for these films. Mm-mm. I feel like every time I've covered a movie with this, I was like, oh, no one laughed at test screens. Test screens are horrible. <laughs> uh, and it's like happened with Holy Grail. It happened with, I think, Top Secret was that way. Austin Powers was that way. Um, Young Frankenstein kind of that way. Produ- it was like producers that way. Like They're all just like, no one really laughed. So we thought we were screwed. And some, some reason, someone kind of grabbed a hold of it and realized it was good and kind of pushed it along um Mm. so yeah but yeah um but that's it on parody month and on mel brooks next month two things happening we're doing for our genre study we're doing erotic thrillers so we're talking about brian de palma's body double is the plan right now uh we're talking about saint kubrick's eyes wide shut is the plan and also talking about adrian lynn who directed such films as fail attraction uh nine and a half weeks and uh unfaithful one of the episodes we're doing next month, our second episode of the month, it's not going to be in that genre, but it's going to be a celebration of our 200th episode, and we're going to be taking questions from uh, our our listeners that we've been sending to us, and that's coming up soon, so stay prepared, or be prepared for all that. Um, that's all we have for you. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so that you stay up to date on all of our new episodes. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us on whatever platform to listen to the show on. Let, let us know if you're loving it. Let everybody else know if you're loving it. Just drop a comment. And say, I'm loving it. Ba da ba ba ba. You know? <laughs> Five stars. <laughs> and finally, don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that jazz. As always, Thomas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.